Well, welcome to the great conversation where ideas matter. Ideas shape our world. And the big ideas that we can share in the security industry help us with our main mission, to protect the lives and assets of our company. With that said, we have today a visitor with us that will be sharing on video and audio, and we'll uh, be able to put those on our website uh, uh, in a few days at sageconversations.com. So if you're listening to this today, you've probably already gone there and accessed this. Uh, Michael Mason, good friend of the great conversation. Um, the thing I like about Michael Mason is he's a true leader because he leads from behind. And, and Michael, I'll never forget these great conversations we've had over the years where, um, where we presented in an auditorium with 300 people up there and uh, people on the main stage. And I watched Mike Mason walk to the very first row of the room, notepad in hand, taking more notes than anyone in the room. So this guy's a lifelong learner. Have you always been that way? Let's, let's go ahead and, and switch to our video. And it looks like you've already started, Mike Mason. I had because I wasn't sure what the exact cue was. But um, in answer to your question, yes, I have, I have always been that way. I sat in the front row of every seat in college except for two classes where they assigned seating and uh, even started it in high school. But in college, I knew uh, I wasn't the sharpest pencil in the box and I didn't want to miss anything. So I needed to stay awake and I needed to stay engaged and sitting in the front with did. I even got teased about that in the FBI, but I've, I've long been somebody who sat in the, in the front row because I want to be engaged. And I don't think I'm a finished product in any area of my life. I don't think I'm a finished product. Well, let's, let's hope we, we all uh, admit to that one day, right? That we all admit to that one day. So, um, so Mike, we're sitting here, we were just talking to everyone a few minutes ago. And we're talking about this unusual time we're in. And uh, Mike was sharing a number of different stories, but um, you were driving down the street the other day and uh, you were thinking about speaking to a group of people, you can set the scene, and you had a little bit of an epiphany. I did. I was gonna be speaking to an alumni association of my, from my alma mater, and I was wondering about how do I attack this subject matter when some of the audience would be recent graduates and some of the audience graduated before me? So it was, it was a really, really mixed audience and really diverse audience. And so I just started thinking, I was actually walking and I saw a butterfly and I thought, okay. And then the next thing that came to my mind was where that butterfly come from? And that butterfly came from a chrysalis. So I decided that I would title my, my presentation crisis leadership, the chrysalis of opportunity. And I really do think that that's exactly what it is. We, we have five minutes to take account of, of what has happened. And then we have to say, okay, how are we going to move forward? I understand what I don't have. But the question is, how do I work with what I do have? How do I continue the mission with what I do have with no diminution of services to the company I'm responsible for uh, security for? Well, uh, for everyone who's trying to figure out and Google what a chrysalis is, why don't you give us what that is? 
Uh, well, chrysalis is the birthplace of a butterfly. It starts as a larva, then they wrap themselves in a web and it becomes a, a solid little piece of construction where inside the larva turns into a butterfly. So when the chrysalis breaks away, you've got this beautiful butterfly that didn't look anything like what it started with. So let's just go back to that, that analogy then. We are quarantined. In a, in a sense, we're in a chrysalis. That's exactly feels, right. It feels a little claustrophobic. It does. It, it feels a little constrained. Mm -hmm. It doesn't feel like ultimate freedom to me. No, it doesn't. But interestingly enough, it becomes what, what we decide it's going to become. It, it, it becomes a claustrophobic environment, or it becomes some place where, where, where life is a little bit different where we change a little bit of the cadence of our life. For me, that has happened for the better. So I've actually had some time to reflect on my life personally, my life professionally. I've had more time because the day, the day is not necessarily longer, but it's spread out over a longer period. So I've really become accustomed to this new cadence. And oftentimes I don't turn my computer off until 9.30 or 10 at night. When I used to, the end of my day used to be signaled by me driving off the campus. Well, now the campus has been extended to my residence. Right. Now, is that in your mind, for you, you're an optimist, but in your mind, is that its own little constraint? Are people feeling now that they never can get away from work? I think I think that is one of the one of the downsides. One of the but then you've got to be intentional about everything in your life. And so when I started feeling like, wow, this day is getting mushy, it's not ending till 10, 1030 at night, then I had to say, okay, there's a time when it stops, when I have my dinner. Now, because it's here, because I don't have any transition time to go to my office, one of the things I'm doing is I'm checking emails later in the day. But listen, I wasn't saving the Republic before, and I'm not saving the Republic now. So again, we have to be careful not to be our own worst enemy. So there are nights when at seven o'clock, I say, I'm done. There are three ways to reach me by an audio signal. If my team needs to reach me, they're aware of all three of those methodologies. So there are times when at seven o'clock at night, I say, okay, that's it. I close my computer down and shut it off. So I just think if we're not intentional, we become like a tumbleweed blown around by the vagaries of the wind. And I don't want to be that. You know, it's so interesting. Um, and, and, and this actually speaks to our collective social conscious in a second, so bear with me, but I think it's an important thing. I think there's a mindset that says work is a chore. Mm -hmm. I'm going to put in my 40 hours. I live for my weekend. I live for my retirement. And I, I, without judgment, let's set that to the side. Mm -hmm. Then there's this mindset that every day is an opportunity to grow, to grow in wisdom, to grow in relationship, that work is breathing just like my relationships are breathing, like a husband, a father, a friend. I'm in work to create something and I'm leaving something behind. And whether you're a stenographer, does that even exist anymore? I just aged myself. Whether you're, whether you're an accountant, 
whether you're a laborer or whether you're a blue collar knowledge worker in this industry, I get from Mike Mason that the mindset should still be the same. Is, am I getting that drift from you? Yeah, that's ab absolutely true. I, I joke that my glass is three quarters full because um, I, I, I can't be around a lot of cynicism. I can't be around a lot of people who are complaining about the environment without saying, okay, this is what it is. Now, what do we do about it? Right. And, and that's what I feel like this is. I actually think the pandemic in many respects represents an opportunity. I also think you're going to find many, many businesses whose uh, brick and mortar footprint is going to absolutely shrink because there was an old school that said, I can't see, if I can't see you, I don't know how productive you are. Well, think about how silly that is. I see my employees now. I don't know what they're looking at on their computer screens. I go by a bank of employees. They're looking at a bank of computers. I often tell them, if you hadn't switched that screen from L.L. Bean, I wouldn't have known you were shopping while you were at work. Um, so, so I don't know what they're, if, if their presence is how we measure their productivity, we are measuring the wrong thing to begin with. That's right. So I think one of the things we're going to have to do is say, okay, how do I from a distance, assuming that it's not widget work. Uh, widget work is a lot easier. If you're supposed to handle eight calls an hour, I can tell if you're handling eight, 15, three, I can tell that. But a lot of our work is not widget work. It doesn't reduce itself to hard metrics very easily. So now we've got to figure out how do we transition? So instead of saying, well, now I can't see when he's doing interviews or doing this or doing that. Well, how else do you, how else, what's another way to measure that productivity? How about talking to the people who do the work? Yeah. How am I supposed to know that, that Ron Warman is working hard? How am I supposed to know that? Okay, well, maybe I have Ron help me. If, assuming that I don't already have a set of metrics wrapped around uh, your performance, regardless of where you perform. And in most of my shop, I'm, I'm happy to say we do have that. Yeah, if you don't have, if you don't have KPIs, key performance right. indicators that are widget-based and easily collectible, and they, through technology, they should be easily collectible and thrown up on a dashboard for a manager. If you aren't in a role like that, then the idea becomes, it's really the challenge of the manager, the right. leader, to say, right. how do I capture the essence of what I need from you? And then at the end of the day, and this is a challenge for us gray hairs, do I care whether you do it in an hour or 16 hours? Right. I care for 16 only because of your work-life balance and burnout. But what I'm getting at is we really, it's interesting enough, we're, we're a little lazy on our KPIs. So we want to just make sure they're there. Right. That's exactly right. That's a, that's a leadership problem to me. That's not an employee right. problem. That is a leadership problem. If, if, because that is lazy to say, I want to see you in front of me. I mean, there are some things that are a little bit gray, like an investigation. How long does it take to do an investigation? Well, it depends on the complexity of the investigation. It depends on a number of different factors. It depends on how hard you apply yourself. But you've got to be, you've got to have a way then of doing like we used to do in the FBI file reviews. Okay, I'm looking at this case. Why is this thing taking 45 days? Because all I can see is you had five things to do. Right. Well, then the person says, well, no, Mike, three of those things led to three separate things. So we might have to have more conversation around our work. 
But I think that the, the place to not stop, I tell my people, this is not a time to stand still. A place to not stop is to say what I can't do, but rather to figure out, okay, how do I go about doing that in this, in this somewhat different environment? So how are you helping your people through the psychology of this crisis so they have a leadership mindset for themselves and for the organization? How, how are you helping them? Well, what I'm trying to get them to do, first of all, is not focus strictly on work, to focus on those relationships. So I'm asking, and this is a small unit leadership issue. I can't do this with 600 people and, and 2,200 guards or whatever. I can't do that with them. It's a small unit leadership. It means when you get on the phone with your folks, find out how they're doing especially the single people who don't have uh, children and don't have a husband and don't have other people to interact with. There are people who are, are hurting from that because that was part of who they were. Going to work was part of their identity. So one of the things that I'm really proud of my team, they found all kinds of different things, like a bring your pet to the, to the staff call. So the pet's sitting there. They've introduced their children. I'll tell you this, Ron, talk about opportunity. I know more about some of my people than I ever knew when we were in person. I know more about what their hobbies are. I know that I've got a couple of guitar players uh, who one guy told he has two really nice guitars sitting side by side every time he's on a staff call. I said, okay, the next time we have a staff call, you got to entertain us. So I have actually had more conversations with more of my employees now than I had before. So yeah, that takes more time, but my God, that's given me something I didn't have before. You know, it's so funny. One of your peers, uh, Hollis Mignon, who uh, interviewed a few days ago, head of Cardinal Health, uh, she was saying the same thing. She goes, it's counterintuitive because we want to say this digital experience isn't as good as right. in person, right? It's our, it's our it's our muscle relaxation to this day. And she goes, that's actually not true. I'm learning more about my employees than I ever did before. I'm learning their pets, their children, you know, and, 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 and we're relaxed. We don't, and, and you know, one other thing. We don't need to be in that suit and tie anymore. Right. We had, we had this thing we call dispatches from all over. It, yeah. was, it was to keep the big group, not a large group, is over 5,000 people. Right. Uh, the different teams in legal, I'm in legal, public policy, and security. That's my larger group. Uh, and we actually had these things called dispatches from all over, where people were telling us how they were getting along, or they were telling us challenges in their shop. They were telling us how they were attacking that. Here's something I can guarantee you. I know more about the component pieces that run this massive ship called Verizon than I ever knew before. I know I, the, the little intricacies that you never know about, getting a right-of-way. You're putting up a, an antenna and what it takes to get a right-of-way from some towns. And you know, everybody thinks they work hard. They think their group works harder than any other group. I have learned, oh my God, I would never want that person's job. Oh my God, how difficult is that? And what a wonderful thing that is. I am smarter about Verizon. After 13 years here, I am smarter about Verizon in some ways as a result of the last three months, uh, not in spite of the last three months. So that's been a wonderful learning experience. The opportunity to learn even more about the business you're really in. That's absolutely, awesome. absolutely. Well, so one of the things we first did when we turned on the video, you were very kind because we're used to seeing each other in that suit and tie 
and those nice those nice haircuts and the and a trim beard if any beard at all and so we're both looking a little different i i can't see the hat you have on what's the hat say well people think because of the colors that it says x fed i mean that it says fedex but it actually says x fed <laughs> So people, I tell people, I tell people that I'm testing their unconscious bias because they see the FedEx colors and they immediately think, I had one colleague say, why are you wearing a FedEx hat? And I took it off and put it up close to the camera and he just died laughing. I said, it's not, it's like one of those tests you get in those psychology things where you, you think you're seeing something that you're not seeing. So I tell them it's my unconscious bias hat. Well, I want to be very specific for our listeners who don't know Mike Mason that doesn't mean he was in jail. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Not, it's not expelling, it's expelled. Again, unconscious bias, right? That's right. Hey, let's, let's, let's go a little bit. I was on the phone with Tyson uh, Aiken at Nike. We were really talking about feeling. Mm-hmm. Not, not something we talk about in security very much, feeling. That is, actually living in the shoes of another. Mm -hmm. You are an incredible leader and you are also a black man, Mm -hmm. an African-American, right? Right. In this day and time, how are you helping your white peers see and hear differently? Well, that's a very, very interesting question. Um, And I was on with a a, a group of uh, my black colleagues recently, and one of them said, until they are willing to do a little more work, I don't want to have any more of those conversations. And And I just said, it was a young man, young man that I've mentored and I really like and a very intelligent guy. And I said, well, let's think about that. How many of you on this call are comfortable conversing with a very, very sick relative or worse, a a relative or friend who is terminal. How many of you have had to have that conversation? Now, none of us may be skilled at having that conversation, at saying the right things to somebody who knows they're dying. I said, but how many of you would deny that person the comfort of your presence because you aren't skilled at having that conversation? And I said, probably very few. So what we need to do, and and this is another philosophy of mine, Ron, is my objective is to educate, not obliterate. So I don't need to scream at you. I don't need to yell at you. We need to understand that some things that are said are very legitimate. Chicago this weekend, there were 13 homicides and 102 shootings, including the death of a three-year-old girl. Now, you won't hear a peep out of anybody over that. You won't know those names. And that, that adds to, since George Floyd was, was senselessly killed, uh, that's more than 35 homicides in my beloved hometown of Chicago. So we can't just say to a white person who says, what about that? We can't just say, those are two separate conversations and wave them off. We have to talk but they have to understand that police have been given certain powers and authorities, and I'm a former uh, FBI special agent. My son is a state trooper in the state of Washington today. They've been given special powers, special authorities. We as a society, not just black society, but as a society should demand that those duties, those responsibilities be executed intelligently, very, very thoughtfully, 
And last but not least, with compassion. When you have power over people, you have to understand that. And so there's work to be done, but fixing the police is, is one piece of the puzzle. And then having a conversation where we can really talk about things candidly is going to be very, very important going forward. But I felt like at times I was a man on an island because I'm not the typical African-American who has had a bad uh, interaction with the police. I've had, I had three interactions with the Chicago police before I turned 16. And all of them were very, very positive experiences. And I get tired sometimes of thinking I have to turn in my black man card if I haven't been uh, abused by the police. Well, I, I can't even imagine, tell you the truth, because uh, I haven't sat in your shoes as a law enforcement person. I can't even imagine how you vet these people who come into law enforcement for their EQ and their IQ, composure under pressure, how you continually refine that, that leadership capability. I just can't imagine because I watch how they're under pressure. Mm -hmm. All eyes are on them at all times now with digital cameras. Right. And, and, and they take the abuse. And uh, it, I'm just reflective on human nature as well. And that is, you know, sorry, in every walk of life, um, there are people who take power and power corrupts them. Absolutely. Right. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So it's going to happen in every part of life. But to your point, how do we develop onboarding, training, and monitoring KPIs of the people who have the power uh, uh, and, 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 and do as much as possible to help them also with the fallibility of their human nature, right? Well, I think one thing, absolutely for sure, you can't take a, a white kid from a middle-class white neighborhood and have his first injection into uh, uh, the black community be after he's pinned on a badge and gun. So one of the things I put on the LinkedIn uh, looking for solutions is you've got to have these trainees in the community and not, not where you drive up a big police bus and they move like a cubby of quail through the neighborhood, but maybe where a Mike Mason says or a Ron Warman says, I invite you into my home for dinner. How about you come to my home for Saturday night dinner? Wow. And then you get to understand the complexity of the community that you are soon going to raise your hand uh, to swear to serve, number one, and protect, number two. So you have to see these folks as people and not just as uh, you know, folks who might live in the projects, not to mention middle class and upper middle class neighborhoods. Blacks are across the rainbow of, of continuum, if you will, of living experiences. And so you have to introduce them to that community beforehand. Otherwise, what they hear about, and this is why these are not two separate conversations, what they hear about is the atrocious violence that was happening in the Chicago community over the weekend. So now the first time they arrive there, they are already amped up. They are already amped up. And, and, and so we need to start thinking of the thin blue line as the line that joins together the quilted fabric that is society today, the very different pieces of quilt that are society today. 
and not think of it as the line that separates them from us. We have to do away with that mentality. And, and I think, and I will say, I will say, there are a lot of police departments now that work very hard to do that. So we need to focus on that. We need to diversify police departments, even though, you know, you can say that African-Americans in the United States are 13, 14% of the population, on police departments, not so much. Well, the fact is they're 20% they're of police departments, but that's from your major cities. So when you get out into your small cities, that there's much less diversity, much less diversity. Yeah, but that one isn't mentioned very often that you actually have a good percentage in the inner cities who are, uh, who are uh, racially diverse uh, in the police force. That's, that's good. And, and I think you need more diversity, not less. So people who, who are talking to young African-American men and women saying, why would you wanna do that? Well, you wanna do that to be part of it. I remember the first time, not the first time, but as an agent, uh, we were arresting some drug dealers in a project. And as we were walking out, uh, one African-American woman says to me, I don't know how you could work with them. And she's pointing at my white counterparts, cops and agents. And I said, ma'am, I do work with them, but let me make it clear that I work for you. We, we're taking a heroin dealer out of this nation, out of this neighborhood, who couldn't care less where that heroin goes after he sells it. I said, so yeah, I'm working with them, but I'm working for you. And I was uh, passionate about that. So I heard a couple of things. First of all, I have never heard someone so eloquently talk about the thin blue line as just another piece of the fabric of society. That was beautiful. Thank you for that. And the second, the second thing is back to this tapestry is um, how really wherever you go, whether it's law enforcement, politicians, social workers, business people, we're back to this idea here is we're all interconnected. You know that as a chief security officer. You know that you're as safe as the community around you. Right. Right? We're all connected. And, uh, and we're just not seeing that perspective come out enough right now, I think. No, I mean, it's something as simple as Martin Luther King said, uh, injustice to anyone is an injustice to us all. And we really, we really, really need to don't just mouth the words, but actually say that. But I will also say to you, Ron, that, that the injustices that have been displayed in the news of, of late, think about the woman who called the police on the African-American bird watcher in Central Park, and, and that company fired her. Okay, that's not enough. How does that sort of unconscious bias manifest itself in that company? So let's say, for example, they were to look at their loan portfolio. What does a loan to a 35-year-old African-American businessman look like compared to a loan made to a 35-year-old uh, white client? The, how much collateral is required in one case versus the collateral in another case? How about where he's going to do business versus where this guy is going to do business? What's your, what's your appetite for risk? So it's not enough just to fire her. Just like at Verizon, it's not enough just to, to, to donate money to the, the four civil rights organizations that my company has donated money to. That's not enough. What are we doing internally to make sure that promotions, special assignments are, are given in a transparent and fair way? 
So that's when I was in the FBI and I, and I sat on the senior executive service board, I learned there that promotions were less about black, white, male, female than they were about who you grew up with. So a white agent, which is why I commissioned a study to, to try to figure this out, that's why a white agent who was a very, very competent agent couldn't get out of the building to go out as a special agent in charge. It wasn't because he was not competent, it was because of who he grew up with. So most of his career was in the Midwest where the FBI tends to be an East Coast centric and Mid-Atlantic more so centric organization. So I, I try not to reduce disparities to their, their simplest pieces. It's too easy to say black and white. You gotta get underneath that a little bit and, yeah. and dig that out. Yeah, there's implicit bias in so many different fabrics of our lives. Just to see that the most successful males in business are over six feet tall, Mike Mason. Right. Why would that be, right? Right. Kind of interesting. It, 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 it absolutely is. Yeah. But I've been, I've been the beneficiary of, of biases as well. When I went to my first office, recruited to the SWAT team, I'd been a Marine Corps officer. So everybody thought this guy's got to be a crack shot. There are rabbits probably still on, on, on uh, anti-excited medicine or whatever because of my shooting. But I knew I was 6'4", former Marine captain. Uh, so I, I too have benefited from, uh, from biases. And most of us, if we were honest, would recognize that, listen, unconscious bias is something you have to be aware of because I would say it has negative effect more than positive. But it's negative all about who it's focused on, right? So if you're one of those white males who got promoted because of who you grew up with, that bias isn't such a bad thing. So we're, we're really back to that opening I said about Mike Mason being at the front of the room, taking the notes, this mindset, which you've used over and over, this mindset that you always have something new to learn and something new to see that you're not seeing today. And, I agree. and, and teaching that mindset is, I think, uh, your greatest lesson to all of us, which brings me to a couple of uh, closing here. Um, you're get, getting toward the end of your career. Yes. At, at least this chapter of it. This chapter of it. So uh, hopefully we all can get together at some point and celebrate that. But if, uh, if we were in a room and I asked you in front of everyone, give me three words that you'd like us to think about in describing who you were up until this point in your career. It three could, words. Could be one word. I'm going to give you three. Okay. I would say uh, compassionate, fair, and transparent. Love it. And then, because the great conversation is a round table with diverse perspectives, ideas, and backgrounds, that help with innovation and change. Did everyone hear that? Because we've been talking about diversity. Diversity is a strategic weapon for the enlightened enterprise. <laughs> indeed, indeed. So, so we're at the round table. Who, who do you want to invite to the round table next, Mike? Who should be at the round table? Who should we have a great conversation with? Now, that's an interesting question. You've already had one with my friend Mike Howard, I understand. Yeah, absolutely. By the way, we came up with a line he may use in his book, the selfishness of selflessness. Ah, okay. They, if you grab a hold of that. Grab a hold of that. That's interesting. Yeah, because the greatest act you could do for yourself is giving away yourself to others. Right. 
Right. right. Well, Kelly Johnstone is my counterpart at Coca-Cola. Right. And she's somebody I really admire. I admire her, her thoughtfulness. I admire her intelligence. I admire when she talks, when Kelly talks, I stop and I'm listening because yeah. she's going to have something good to say. She's going to have something really good to say. That's good. That's good. Well, I appreciate that. And finally, uh, I don't know if you're a reader or not, uh, or if you are, which, uh, but I come to you, I go, Mike, I want to learn from you. Uh, are there any books I can read that you would turn me on to? What, what books would you turn people on to? Well, I'd read a, I'd turn you on to a book I just read for a lot of different reasons, but Just Mercy is, is a book I really think, I know it was a movie, I saw the movie, the movie tracks the book, but not with the nuances contained in the book. I would really recommend that uh, as, as just an eye-opener, and a real eye-opener. Um, and again, my, my goal is to educate. Can I tell one little story? I mean, you could-, you could Please, please. So when I was an FBI inspector, we went to Omaha, and we had ad hoc jobs. One of mine was with uh, an EEO complaint. White woman comes to me and she says, I want you to know I'm here to complain that my husband didn't get the third party draft. Third party draft was like a bookkeeper in the FBI back in the day. Didn't get the job because the FBI needed to diversify this office and that's why Mary was hired as, a, as the third party draft officer. I said, okay, tell me a little bit about your husband. Very calmly, more calm than I'm talking now. She said, well, he's a telephone lineman uh, and, uh, you know, real smart guy has been the bookkeeper for my church. I said, okay, fair enough. How many people in your church? About a hundred, but he keeps all the books, all the things to do with money. My husband's responsible for keeping. I said, okay. I said, what do you know about Mary? She said, I don't know anything about Mary. I said, did you know that she had a degree in accounting? Her husband had been, uh, was a graduate of a junior college. I said, did you know she had a degree in accounting? She said, no. I said, did you know she was a certified public accountant, a licensed certified public accountant? She said, no. I said, did you know she had a master's degree in tax accounting? She said, no. And now her eyes are starting to well up. And I said, did you know that prior to stopping work four years ago to start a family, she was a CFO for a Fortune 1000 company here in Omaha? And she said she didn't. And then now she's crying and she said, may I be excused? And I said, I didn't mean to make you cry. She said, you didn't. About five hours later, she meets me. I'm with a group of people. She says, Mr. Mason, may I give you a hug? And I said, well, sure. She gives me a hug. I said, what was that for? She said, I am ashamed of myself. She said, for the first time in my adult life, I am ashamed of myself. I assumed Mary got hired simply because of her color. I was so angry. I never even thought to say, maybe Mary is more talented than my husband. She said, she is far and away more talented than my husband, but I had complained to neighbors and coworkers that it's a darn shame that my husband didn't get hired because they needed to hire a black woman. She said, I had tucked that in my shirt pocket, patted it down and was ready to carry that around with me for the rest of my life. She said, you opened my eyes. You didn't yell at me. You didn't scream at me. You didn't make fun of me or anything. You asked me a series of questions about my husband and then answered those questions about Mary, an exercise I never attempted to engage in. So again, Ron, my goal was educate. Don't obliterate. Don't yell and scream at her. Don't say, how dare you? Educate. She was a smart woman. She's smart enough to know when I put those facts, like I said, she started crying 
before I even finished because she realized what she had done. And she told me the first time in my adult life, I am ashamed of myself. That was a victory. And that right there is a great conversation with Mike Mason. He's leaving us with a different way of seeing our world and a mindset in which to approach it. Mike, thank you so much. Well, thank you for inviting me, Ron. I really appreciate it. And you can see other content at sageconversations.com. This has been another great conversation.